tells us in Romans 8 and 28 that we know that all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord and to them who are the called according to his purpose. We either believe that or we don't. We are either people of faith or we are not. The steps of a good man are ordained of God. He knows our rising up and our lying down. He knows when we go outward and he knows when we come inward. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 18, and everything give thanks unto God for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I love the admiration that Paul gives us in the book of Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 and he says rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice so Paulus family right there with your people with your family right there in your homes or wherever you may be gathered would you just lift your hands and glorify the name of Jesus Christ magnify the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords right where we're at oh because he has not forsaken us praise his holy name This is not a time to be sad or downcast or worried or fretting or anxious or doubtful just like some of them were on that first Easter morning. But I'm reminded of Mary Magdalene and the Mary, a mother of Jesus, when they came to the tomb where Jesus laid on that first Easter morning. The Bible says that there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord to descend from heaven. And he came and he rolled back that stone and he sat upon it. I love that passage of scripture because for him to roll back that stone means that he was defined the whole Roman government which was the most powerful force on the face of the earth at that time that that stone had a seal upon it and it was a Roman seal a Roman signet that said anybody that messes with this stone will have to face the wrath of that entire Roman army but that angel came down and rolled that stone back and sat on it as if to say what are you going to do about it hallelujah can I tell you then the angel spoke to those women and they said fear not for I know whom you seek, you seek Jesus who was crucified. But he is not here for he's risen from the dead as he said, come and see the place and where he laid. I like that passage as well because not only does he comfort them with the words of Jesus' own mouth, he tells them, he says he's not here as Jesus has said. And we can take Jesus for his word. But he even went further than that and said if you don't believe, come and see. See the evidence. See the manifestation. He is not here Come and look at the place and where he laid. Can I remind each and every one of you here today that we are serving a risen Savior. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Oh, hallelujah. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. We have to keep that in scope with what all is going on in our world. The Bible says that God has worked his plan in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, which he raised from the dead and said, him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. For above all principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but even the world to come. I love that because that is evidence that God is still with us. Because Jesus is set right now in the heavenlies for above all principalities and powers and mights and dominion. And he's given him a name as above every name, not only in this world, but even in the world to come. So Christ is still with us. And then he says, which is the body, the church, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Just as the tomb could not conceal and hold Jesus Christ in who was the light of the world. Can I remind you as well, this building, a religion, a tradition, a system cannot hold in or conceal the true body of the Lord Jesus Christ either. God is raising his church up in these last days just like he did his son on that first Easter morning. And the church 
church is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from him to rise up the church, it means to unconceal her, to showcase her, to reveal her, to manifest her, to unveil her. God is about to unveil the church in these last days. The greatest time of the church in history is not our past, but it's our future and our present. Can I tell you, the church is not going down. The church is going up in the name of Jesus. God in these last days is freeing the church from dead religion so that we can serve and worship the true and living God. What is happening here in our time with this virus is not going to destroy the church. I can remind you of what Jesus said himself. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And you and I are made more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who died and gave himself for us. But it is God dispersing his church and unveiling it to a lost and dying world. Just what the persecution did on the day of Pentecost for the church is exactly what this virus is doing in the last days to the church. It is scattering the saints so the word of God can grow, so the saints can be multiplied. The church is getting out of her four walls and instead of revival coming to the church, the church is taking the spirit of revival and bringing revival back home to the church. Right now as I'm standing here, we're hearing testimonies all across our congregation of family members who are not saved, who are beginning to inquire about the Lord. There's a move of the Holy Spirit like never before that has taken place in the body of Christ. Men and women are rising up and they're getting their priorities right. They're seeing what really matters within life. Families are coming together. There is a spirit of revival that has taken place right here on this Easter morning. God is raising up his church the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now also quickening the church and making it alive so it can do its greatest work. What is the message that the church is to give to the world? What are we to talk about? The virus that has so many afraid? Are we to talk about the economy that has so many concerned? Are we to focus our attention on the events only of this day and hour? No, but one man even stated on the news, he said, well, it's foolishness for our president to even give hope to Americans as we face this hopelessness. Can I tell you that's how that the sinner feels. They feel like that there is no hope. This, this virus has attacked America and it has come against our nation and it has caused people to have no hope. But let's look at our text, which is a very unusual text, especially for an Easter Sunday morning. And I've never used this text in this context before. And let's look at it. Let's see the underlining message that we are to give to a hopeless world here today. As we look into our text that I have chosen out of the book of Genesis, chapter 4, verse 1 through 12 first, we see an underlining mystery that is tied to this passage. Actually, I want us to pay attention to the thread of redemption that reaches all the way back to the first family of the Bible. We see Genesis chapter 4 that the first man, Adam, knew his wife and she bore a son and she called his name Cain. And we see that she bore again another son and she called his name Abel. It is believed that by most historians that these two were actually twins because of the language that is used in verse 1 and 2. She conceived once, but she bore twice. Here, in the, here is the first family of the Bible, the first created human institution called the family that was to bear the image and the reflection of their creator, Father God. 
And even though this first family was to bear the image of their creator, yet something horribly went wrong. The Bible tells us that as the boys grew up, that Cain became a tiller of the ground. He actually became a farmer. The Bible also tells us as Abel grew up, that, that he was a keeper of sheep, that he became a shepherd. And the first two occupations on earth both involved the product productivity of life. They were a food source. This speaks of productivity and faithfulness and harvest, and it speaks of increase. Isn't that the will of God for every family, for every man, every woman, and every child? Did not First John tell us, Beloved, I wish you'd be in health and prosper even as your soul prospers. He wants the family to be fruitful, and he wants the family to multiply. This was his original command to Adam and Eve in the garden after their creation. After God created Adam and Eve, he told them, them in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over everything that creepeth upon the earth. Notice that God blessed them before he commanded them to be fruitful. Their fruitfulness came from God blessing them and not from within themselves. All fruitfulness increase and multiply and productivity derives from God himself blessing his people. Without God blessing man, man in himself does not have the ability to be fruitful. Our fruitfulness is tied to our relationship with God himself. You and I cannot be fruitful by ourselves. We cannot be fruitful without him. Jesus said in John chapter 15 verse 5, without me you can do nothing. And we see from our text in verse 3, in the process of time that it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. We also see in verse 4 and Abel he also brought the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. Here we see that both boys brought an offering to the Lord. Somehow they had been taught about offering. Somewhere down the line Adam and Eve had showed them the principles of giving back to God. But the problem comes in verse 4 and 5. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had no respect, and Cain was wroth and his countenance fell. Here we see Cain is upset. He's angry. He's mad because his offering was not accepted, but his brother Abel's was. He becomes very jealous. The Bible says that he became wroth. And this word carries with it a much heavier meaning than that of just being angry, but it takes it to a level of wrath. That actually, here he comes to a place where he has wrath held up in his heart. You can be angry in sin not, but to manifest or to hold wrath, the heart is seeking vengeance or to do harm or to kill or to murder. Cain has come to the point of the hatred of his own brother. Cain harbored murder in his heart and eventually would play that murder out and kill Abel. The Bible does it come out and explicitly tell us why Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's was rejected, but we do have the underlining nature of God revealed and bits and pieces of evidence of why this happened. We see an early example of the model and the patterns and the procedures that God would use in the future to deal with his people in these scriptures. First of all, we do see the Bible is clear and it states that Abel brought the firstlings of his flock. This speaks of first fruit 
fruits, it speaks of his tithe. Abel brought his firstlings of his flock to God. Nowhere else or nowhere in Scripture do we see that Cain brought the first fruit of his increase or the first of his fruit to God. It does not say that. One might argue that the law was not yet given, therefore the tithe was not yet required. Yet we also have to understand that tithing was a principle that was practiced way before the law. We see Abraham, excuse me, we see Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek, the high priest of Salem. And even though the law was not given, there was a practice of tithing that was handed down from the first patriarch of the Bible, even from the very beginning. Tithing was a principle of the heart. It was an indicator of faith and gratitude and thankfulness and worship. It was an open confession that one believed that their increase came from God and God alone and not from within themselves. This heart was seen in Abel, but it seemed to be very void of Cain. So when Cain presented his offering, it was void of faith, it was void of true gratitude and thankfulness, and it was not considered as an act of worship. Look at the key word in verse 4, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and unto his offering. Abel's offering wasn't the only thing that gained God's respect, but Abel himself also gained God's respect. The offering is only as good as the one that's actually given it. That's why the Bible tells us that God is a spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The acceptance of the offering was due to the kind of heart that Abel had in presenting that offering to God. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear of why Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's was rejected in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4. It says, by faith, Abel offered up a more excellent sacrifice than that of Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Did you see the first two words of that scripture? By faith, Abel, Abel offered. Cain's offering was the effort of dead religion, while Abel's offering was made of faith, which testified and witnessed that he was righteous. Cain's offering was not offered in faith, and the Bible says in Romans 14 and 23, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Abel's offering was offered to God with a desire to worship him in spirit and in truth, while Cain's offering was an offering showing God what Cain himself was able to produce. This was an offering of works. It was the proud showcase of secular humanism, showing man's own ability of how to be productive. That was the kind of offering that Cain made to God. Abel was giving God thanks and worshiping him for the increase, realizing that without God that he was nothing, while Cain was presenting his offering as proof of why that it should be accepted due to the basis of his hard work. He was proud of what he achieved, that's what he thought, and he brought it to God expecting God to feel the same way he did about it. Abel's offering was strictly given in faith, while Cain's offering was given out of the flesh. And what does the Bible say about fleshly, worldly? sacrifice in 1 Corinthians 129 that no flesh shall glory in his presence. The Bible says that Abel not only brought of the firstborn of his flock but it also says in verse 4 that he brought also the fat thereof. These words may not mean a lot to you and I but it means a lot in the scope of biblical concept of offering. This actually shows us that Abel's offering was extra extra special. The fat of the animal was considered a prized luxury. 
sanctuary, and it was to be given to God with the, when the animal was sacrificed. And we would see this later in the Levitical law, in the preparation and the giving of sacrifice under that law. Look at the book of Leviticus chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It says, And the priest shall burn them upon the altar. It is the food of the offering made by fire for a sweet smell and Savior. All of the fat is the Lord's. It shall be a perpetual statute for your generation throughout all of your dwelling that ye eat neither fat nor blood. The burning of the fat and sacrifice before God in Leviticus 17 and 6 was called a sweet smelling aroma or a sweet smelling Savior. It says, And the priest shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and burn the fat for a sweet smelling Savior unto the Lord. The fat always belonged to God all throughout the Old Testament. I love that little scripture that's tucked away there that says that God loves fat. Oh, praise the Lord for that. But the, the burning of this fat was a sweet aroma that went up to God like a sweet-smelling Savior or an incense. It was an offering that produced a fragrance of worship to God, which was acceptable in His sight. This fat was considered the luxury. It was man giving his very best. That's what Abel was doing. Abel was giving his very best. Abel was going beyond giving his first fruit. He was giving his best. He was giving his all, and God honored him for it. However, even though the first fruits was important and the fat was an extravagance of worship, yet they could not compare to what took place in Abel's offering next. Oh, hallelujah. Abel was a shepherd, and to offer the sheep unto God was not just presenting a lamb before the Lord, but to offer it meant it had to be killed. It had to be dressed. It had to be destroyed. It had to be cut up and laid upon an altar. It had to shed its blood. It was to be offered within sacrifice. This lamb had to die. Oh, what a glorious picture of the scarlet thread of redemption that is so beautifully woven throughout every book of the Bible. And it reaches all the way back to this very first family. Here we see a picture of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. Even though the Mosaic law had not yet been instituted and the Day of Atonement was not yet an ordinance, yet somehow this first shepherd understood the meaning of redemption by the shedding of blood. And the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22, without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. I don't know how Abel knew it, but somehow he was taught it. Somehow he knew it. And here he's presenting a sacrifice of blood unto the Lord. Just as we see tithing as a principle before the law through the example of Abraham, even so we also see the sacrifice of animals' blood in the book of Genesis by God himself. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they went and they hid themselves in the midst of the garden according to the word of God. It was God that killed and dressed animals as a sacrifice. And he took their hides and made them clothings for them to hide them from their nakedness and hide them from their shame. It was God that provided the very first sacrifice recorded in the Bible and it was for the covering of the sins of Adam and Eve. And though law was not yet instituted, yet there was a law that was broken. God told Adam and Eve not to partake of the forbidden fruit that was on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we all know the story how that the devil tempted Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had commanded them not to eat. God had said every tree in this garden you can eat of. But there's one tree that's in the midst of the garden. You shall not partake of it. You shall not eat of that 
that tree lest you die. And we see that the devil drew Eve into a conversation in the book of Genesis chapter 2. This is here where the devil is in the, he comes in the form of a servant, very crafty, very deceiving. He is the father of lies. He's very crafty and he's a deceptive devil. And he comes to Eve and draws her into this congregation, into this conversation. He says, yea, God has said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And this is why that you don't want to give any place for the devil. The Bible says, draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you and then resist the devil. But it is here in the midst of conversation that the devil begins to trick Eve up. Eve then begins to correct him by saying, oh, we may eat of every fruit of the tree of the garden, but the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it unless you die and you shall not touch it unless you die. Well, God never said anything about not touching it, but he did says the day you eat of it, you're going to die. And the serpent replies back to Eve, oh, you shall not surely die. For God knows that the day that you eat thereof, your eyes shall be open and you shall be as gods knowing good and evil. The temptation here is no longer just partaking of a fruit, but now it's changed to the temptation is that she, Eve is wanting to become as God. The next thing we see is it says, and, we, and Eve saw that her eyes, uh, or that her eyes were open and that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree to be desired to make one wise. And she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave unto her husband also with her and he did eat. Notice that the Bible says the reason that she partook of it because it was a tree to make one wise. She bought into the devil's lie. Here is where secular humanism was birthed. Now for the very first time man would be able to see moral goodness. And it was here that he would now discern what was good and what was bad. It would no longer be God that would discern it, but now man would discern it within himself. Up until this time, all man knew was God's righteousness and God's goodness, and all he knew that he could not coexist without God. Man up until this point knew that without God that he was nothing and that he could not survive and he could not live without the presence of God. It was only in him that they moved and they breathed and they had their being. Does not that sound familiar? Talking about Christ in the book of Acts. But now since their eyes have been opened for the first time to see good and evil, now they were introduced to secular humanism. And we see Abel's offering was a prototype of God's original sacrifice in the garden. Here the first priest and the first shepherd in the Bible would make a model for future offerings and sacrifices. The model would derive out from God the Father himself in the garden. He was Abel's example. The shepherd, Abel, would follow the example of God and offer a blood sacrifice to cover his sin, one lamb for a man. Here is Abel offering one lamb for himself. Later we would see, even before the law, at the first Passover in Egypt, the offering would be one lamb for a family. Then after the Mosaic law would be established, on the Day of Atonement, we would see one lamb for a nation. But later we would see another shepherd, another priest appear, the great shepherd or the high priest Jesus Christ, and now it would be one lamb for the world. Hallelujah. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, how true John the Baptist was when he was baptizing converts out in the Jordan River, and out there on that Judean hillside came Jesus, and 
it was John the Baptist that pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. Abel offered a lamb to the covering of sin. This would be the example all the way through the Old Testament. These offerings would only provide a covering, but they could not and they, and they, and they would not destroy or take away sin. Hebrews 10 and 4 says, For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away our sin. These offerings satisfied God momentarily. They appeased God. They relieved or they satisfied him. These offerings were meant to pacify him for a specific space of time. But when Jesus came, he did not just pacify God the Father. He did not justify him momentarily. He did not just cover the sins of humanity, but he redeemed man from his sin and he justified him before God. And Jesus destroyed sin once and for all. He took the handwritings of ordinances that was against us and nailed them to the cross never to be remembered on us ever again. Can you give him praise? Oh, hallelujah. This is why the Hebrews 10, 24 says, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speak of better things than that of Abel. In other words, what Abel's offering could only do momentarily, Jesus' offering would do throughout eternity. This is why our text says in Hebrews 9 and 12, neither by the blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once, not two times, not five times, not a hundred times, but Jesus entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal salvation and redemption for you and I. It was God that offered the first sacrifice and it was God that has offered the last sacrifice. This is why he's the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the first, the last. This is why he's the author and the finish of our faith. Jesus has paid the sin debt for us all once and for all. Jesus Christ cried on the cross it is finished. It is accomplished. It is done. Romans 6, 23 says, The wages of sin may be death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isaiah 53 and 5, He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity, and the chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And through His stripes we are healed. Historians tell us of a story of Caiaphas, the high priest. We know that when Jesus was on the earth, Caiaphas was the high priest. And Caiaphas was to Jesus of what Cain was to Abel. We know that Cain was the one that hated Abel. Cain was the one that set out to destroy him. Well, this is what Caiaphas was to Jesus. He was the one that got the mob together and was crying out, crucify him. He's the one that wanted Barabbas, a common criminal, to be released to him and be freed while Jesus would be killed and hang upon a cross. And it was Caiaphas that was behind the mob that destroyed Jesus Christ. But there's a historian, I read it many years ago and tried to find out who the historian was and I failed to find it. But nevertheless, this historian says that he had actually interviewed Caiaphas after the resurrection. And in this story, it tells us that after the resurrection that Jesus appeared to Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, after his resurrection. 
And he tell, goes on and it tells us that as he seen Jesus, as Jesus manifested himself before him, he fell as if he was dead on the ground. Jesus had come and appeared before him and said, Caiaphas, look. And he showed him his nail-scarred hands and he showed him the pierced side to prove who he was. And Caius fell as if he was dead, weeping. And all of a sudden, Jesus said, be not afraid, Caiaphas. And it was there that Caiaphas spilled his heart out before God. And he asked for forgiveness and he asked for salvation in Jesus Christ. And when it was all said and done, Jesus went over and lifted him up off the ground and told him not to be afraid and looked in his eyes and he looked at Caiaphas, that high priest, and he said, Caiaphas, you've offered your last lamb. There's no need for another lamb to be offered because Christ has offered himself once and for all as the eternal lamb that would take away the sins of the world for eternity. Oh, praise God. And now we have redemption through his name. As Abel brought an acceptable sacrifice to God that was a sweet-smelling Savior, even so Christ would present himself before God as an acceptable sacrifice. And his life would be a sweet-smelling aroma of redemption. And even though Abel was hated and rejected by Cain without a cause and killed, even so Jesus was hated and rejected without a cause. He who knew no sin nor God was found in his mouth. And yet it was his own that killed him and crucified him. He came into his own and his own received him not. And the Jewish people had him die upon that cross. But notice that after Cain became wroth and killed Abel, that God comes and confronts Abel and says, or Cain and says, Cain, where is your brother? Cain's reply, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God then says, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out from the ground to me. Abel, that first shepherd, that first priest's blood was crying out from the ground after being murdered by Cain, his brother. And it was crying out, vengeance, vengeance, vengeance. Abel's blood was demanding justice. He was demanding the wrong to be made right. He was demanding judgment. That blood began to scream judgment and vengeance and justice but oh when you look at the blood of Christ and how it speaks upon the cross it's not crying out for justice it's not crying out for vengeance it's not crying out for judgment but that blood is screaming and yelling from the cross mercy 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 for we find the beloved's voice of Jesus Christ himself while he was in agony upon that cross saying Father Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's a blood cry of mercy from the Master, Jesus Christ. And then when Jesus rose from the grave and he placed that sacred blood on the mercy seat of heaven, it's now that blood's not only crying out mercy, but it's crying out grace, 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 marvelous grace where sin abounds God's grace does much more abound for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it's the gift of God not by works listen he man should boast mercy keeps you from getting what you deserve but grace gives you what you don't deserve mercy keeps me from being punished but grace gives me salvation and eternal life through Jesus Christ I would show grace gives me hope in the midst of hopelessness it's the grace of God. 
Abel followed the example of God's sacrifice in the garden. But it looks like that Cain took after the example of Eve. His offering was that of self-presumption. He tried to gain merit with God through his works, through his sacrifice, through his performance, through his talent, through his ability. And we see God rejecting that offering. Can I tell you that there's only one way to the Father, my friend? Now it's through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father except through me. Many people try to earn their way into salvation. They present their good works. They offer their good giftedness. They present their talents. They offer their performances. They rely on their moral goodness. But this is all the way of Cain. Remember, you can only be fruitful and productive by God's blessing on your life and God's favor on your life. Man cannot save himself. Jude verse 11 says, Woe unto them that have gone by the way of Cain. They have erred and they'll all perish. There's not a greater curse on earth than empty, vain religion, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. The Bible tells us that the earth would not even yield their increase with Cain, no matter where he went, no matter how fertile the ground was, no, how, no matter how rich the soil was. When Cain would plant his crops, the earth would not yield her increase to him because he had not the favor of God. This is how that Cain lived his own life, roaming as a fugitive and a vagabond. A fugitive is a guilty man that is on the run trying to avoid punishment. A vagabond is a restless person, a wanderer, a person that cannot find rest or safety or security. But yet God told Cain, Cain, why are you so wroth by me not accepting your offering? If you would have done good... Would not I have done good to you? I'm not a respecter of persons. It was God's desire to accept Cain's offering, but he could not accept it in the way that it was presented and the way that it was offered. Second Peter 3 and 9 tells that God is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but God is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any, not any should perish, but that all should come into repentance. God wants to accept all of us. But he can only accept those who come by the way of the cross. The only way that God can accept us is through his son, Jesus Christ, and the blood atonement that he offered to us. As Paul Peter put it in Acts 4 and 12, neither is there salvation in the other, for there is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we can be saved, other than through the precious name of Jesus Christ. And 1 Peter 1 and 18 tells us, for as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but you're redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without spot and blemish. On this blessed Easter morning, I want you to know that you and I, the only way that our offering of worship and our offerings of sacrifice and all of the things that we give to God, the only way it can be accepted if it comes by the way of the blood. Us understanding without him we are nothing. It's not about our talents, our works, our abilities, or what we can do, or what we have done. It's all about what He has done, and how we accept and embrace that sacrifice in which He gave unto us. It's by the blood of Jesus Christ that you and I can have eternal redemption. It's through that precious blood that we are saved. It's through that precious blood that we are forgiven. It's through that precious blood that you and I live and move and have our being. So this morning, I want you to have a reflection of time at your homes. Maybe there's someone there beside you that's not saved. Talk to them about their salvation. 
Let them know that the only way to be saved is through Christ. And let us know online. Go online and give us testimonies. Those of you that may have given your life to the Lord here today, we want you to have a good Easter. We want you to have a time, good time with your family. But mainly of all, we want you to reflect upon the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because his blood is not out to condemn us. His blood is screaming mercy. His blood is screaming grace. What a Savior. What a sacrifice. What a King. And what a soon coming Lord to gather us, to take us home with him. May the Lord bless you from the palace of praise this day. And may this message penetrate your heart. And may God forever be glorified in everything that we say and do. In Jesus' name, be blessed, be fruitful, and may God's favor be upon every household. May the blood of the Lamb be applied to every household that belongs to the palace of praise in Jesus' name. God bless you. We'll see you soon. Happy Easter.